Hello and welcome to Altamar, where every other week we navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And as the U.S. opens up after a very dreary winter, a year of COVID shutdowns and restaurants and airplanes are filling up, Joe Biden charges on with his very ambitious agenda and the U.S. economy is sending very mixed signals. And yes, the U.S. economy grew at 6.4 annualized rate this quarter, but contradictions are everywhere. Workers are suddenly hard to find in many industries, including the restaurant industry, but unemployment numbers are not dropping nearly as fast as expected. Items like cars, homes, and foods are getting more and more expensive as worries about inflation begin to rise and interest rates continue to stay low. So, Peter, there is no precedent to the post-pandemic economic scenario. That's pretty obvious, and it's very hard to predict its course. But many leading economists, even Democrats, Biden supporters from the left and also people from the right, are voicing concerns and will be joined later by Caroline Atkinson, who was the head of global policy for Google and on the National Security Council during the Obama administration, and she will help us build some possible scenarios for the U.S. Moni, you know, I don't even know how to describe the U.S. economy. Mixed signals, total confusion. It's really difficult, and the world is watching with concern as the U.S. economy. It's still the global locomotive, and it's so hard to figure out what was going on. Let Let me tell you an anecdote. I was in Philadelphia the other Sunday, for my daughter's university graduation, and I wanted to pop into a downtown drugstore mid-morning Monday in midtown Philadelphia. Everything was full, and when I got to the drugstore, there was a lady who was blocking the door saying that we couldn't come in, even though the hours posted on the drugstore glass said that the pharmacy was opened a couple of hours ago, and the lady explained that she was the manager, but she couldn't allow anybody to come in because she was the only person there that nobody had showed up to work. It's impossible for her to found workers. And so she can't open the store without at least one other person coming in. So, you know, Joe Biden may be betting heavily on the stimulus-led scenario and a return of, like, demand-side policies through huge investments and social programs and infrastructure packages. But while the Congress debates all of these proposals, there's something weird happening on the streets. It's true, Peter. The price tags are frightening even moderate Democrats and try to rent a car these days, see how much that costs. Biden's bold plan has raised growing fears of overheating the economy. And although both the government and the Fed, they're working hand in hand and betting that the price hikes will be temporary and jobs will recover quickly, experts are less sure and the clock is ticking. And Biden, under pressure even within the White House, continues to make the case that circumstances are dire after that pandemic and that quick, big solutions to global issues like climate change, the threat of China and rising poverty levels require a bold and fast response. And you know what? I agree with that. I think I think that all of those things do require you know, fundamental shifts in the economy. And, you know, this thing that experts are now calling Bidenomics uh, to describe this very expensive, very worker-led recovery strategy that could make the U.S. look more in a way like Europe with a much larger state, a much larger welfare state. And, you know, so every one of his supporters, and I'm certainly one of them, you know, hope and pray that the Fed and Biden's calculations are accurate and that prices are not going to rise and they will stabilize in the short term because, 
you know, the alternative would be a hike in corrective interest rates that's going to hurt first and foremost the people who voted for Biden, which are low-income families, and it's going to destabilize the markets. And, you know, you can already see that with tech stocks. So it's just such a strange situation in which we find ourselves. Clearly, the economy is growing, but the transition here out of the pandemic and into a growing re- economy is something that I don't think a lot of people could have predicted. A lot of Republicans right now are suddenly reconnecting with their deficit hawk cores after four Trump years of deficit soaring budgets. And now they're afraid of and, and reminding people of the Carter years inflation crisis, calling for an end to stimulus checks and rejecting any new tax increases. There's optimists that believe that the economy is in a transition and that it's only a matter of weeks or months for the cooling to take place. But the truth is, if job reports don't start to improve, and I'm talking in the next month, the pressure will rise even more. And so what you see here is now America's confusion turning into sort of global confusion, because you see that even some European countries are not very happy with President Biden's global proposal to the OECD to implement the global mineral corporate tax, and they're coming up with their own models. But it's not only that specific policy goal, it's other larger worries because the U.S. with its effective vaccination program, its high spending, this dynamic growth is currently the main engine for global recovery. It's, it's much more important now than China is after having lagged behind China for so long. And as stimulus begins to cross borders in the form of demand for global goods, concerns rise about the economic and geopolitical implications that this U.S. bubble could pop and that we might see an inflationary rise, that we might not see the employment follow suit fast enough. And and the mood, you can feel it around the world. You know, it's shifting from, you know, the elation and optimism that we're leaving the pandemic to now this new worry about all things. But it's not a worry about one specific thing. It's a worry about sort of a whole plethora of things that don't seem to add up. And Taya, I think one of the things that doesn't seem to add up is what's happening with young people. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at how this all relates to young people and within a social justice context. So, Peter Mooney, you described the strange transitioning economy, and what worries me that it, it continues to disproportionately affect young people. In the first half of 2020, the number of young people neither working nor going to school more than doubled to over 10 million. And this year, in 2021, uh, youth employment is still nearly double the national average. Conditions are even more dire for young people of color. And so the dramatic impact of the pandemic-induced crisis on young people is due in part to their concentration in industries that have seen steep job losses. Prior to the pandemic, one out of four young people worked in leisure and hospitality, the industry that experienced the highest number of job losses during the early months of the pandemic. What I'm also really looking forward to hearing from our guest, Caroline, is about the different recovery patterns. So recent studies showed that high-wage workers, those earning over $60,000 annually, had recovered all the job lost in the pandemic crisis. But middle-wage and lower-wage workers, those earning less than $27,000, remained 30% lower. That's the K-shaped recovery for you. It's a recovery for better-off workers and households, but continuing damage to lower-income ones. 
And, you know, I feel this firsthand as a restaurant owner, along with Peter, we've experienced these issues firsthand with our employees and others in the industry. But a lot of my friends, highly educated, high wage workers have not. So aside from the difficulty of having to work from home day in and day out for more than a year, which I completely understand. But, you know, aside from that, none of my friends lost their jobs or experienced wage cuts. So as I just talked about young workers, I'd like to leave listeners with one homework task. Talk to a low-wage worker, whether it's someone in your neighborhood restaurant, a cleaning crew, or a construction worker, and ask them how the economic recovery has been for them. You might be shocked to hear their story. It is a concerning outlook, Dea, and we can address that with our guests. I look forward to her feedback. Carolyn Atkinson has a long history in economic policy. She's been head of global policy for Google, Obama's deputy national security advisor, and she's acted as U.S. Sherpa for G7 and G20 meetings and held positions in the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, the IMF, the Bank of England, and others. And she's also written for the Washington Post, The Economist, and The Times of London. So welcome, Caroline. We're very happy to have you back on Altamar. Thanks very much, Mooney. Great to be here. You're going to be very helpful today. We've been talking about Biden's transformational economic policies and whether they are too bold and may backfire. What is your assessment of the current economic situation? Well, let me first turn to what's my assessment of Biden's transformational plans. And I, my main concern is that they may not all get implemented. And that's because part of the transformation is just to go big. That's what he announced. That's what his Treasury Secretary announced. And that part has already happened. But, and that's, I think, mostly good. We'll come on to some of the complications of it. But the other transformational part is about rebuilding America, preparing for climate, having a better social safety net for families. And those measures have not yet been agreed by Congress and not yet been implemented. They are in the proposals that the president has laid out in the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, and then just today, his budget for 2011 and thereafter. But these sorts of things like infrastructure, roads and bridges, but also internet, education, child tax credits, special help for families, and some of the things to address systemic racism, like reconnecting neighborhoods, those sorts of projects are not yet agreed by Congress. So I'm hopeful that at least a chunk of them will be, and that will cement the transformation. What about all the contradictions? One of which, I guess the most newsworthy one is the job market. What is the reason for the trends where there is a labor shortage in so many sectors and unemployment remains stubbornly high? First off, I will say that it is a very confusing time. And anybody who's honest admits that. And the most honest economic analysts, when they're asked what's going to happen to inflation, to unemployment, will admit that they don't really know now because there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And I can go into that in more detail. But just to say, just think how many times in the last year you've heard people say that something that just happened was unprecedented, whether it was the global pandemic, the lockdown, the sudden loss of more than 20 million jobs in America, the sudden regaining of 10 million. 
these sorts of things mean that people are very confused about what's happening and it's really hard to predict. On the labor shortage itself, I will just note that employers, whenever there is a change or a pickup from a recession, their first reaction is to find that it's hard to hire back the people that they had before and they feel that there's a labor shortage. So in a way, that's nothing new. But there are, of course, special things this time. First of all, there's COVID. A lot of the places where it's hard to get workers, whether it's in retail stores, restaurants, bars, uh, even airports, and some people think in public schools, are places where, first of all, people were laid off very sharply, very suddenly. Secondly, where going to work was risky for public health, for, I mean, for their personal health, these essential services. And um, that continues a bit. Thirdly, their jobs that tend to be low paid, and when people are laid off, they may well be prompted to think about doing something else. Now, there is also an argument, as I'm sure you've heard, that, well, maybe it's just too easy to stay home and collect unemployment benefits, especially because there's been an increase in the unemployment benefits, a temporary boost from the federal government of $300 a week. And that's a possibility, but um, we'll see soon enough because that expires in September and a, lo a lot of states are already phasing it out in June. I will just say in a more, there's a sort of economic theoretical term, which is reallocation friction. And that just is a fancy way of saying when a lot of jobs have been lost, businesses have closed, people have been fired or people have yeah, been forced to cut their hours, it takes a while to restart. And that's the friction. And that if you're restarting in a different sector, there's even more friction. So that's the reallocation friction that always happens after a recession. It happens especially if you have a really big drop in employment. And we know that in those sectors I mentioned before, retail sales, restaurants and bars, hospitality, travel, there was a massive decline in those services and massive job loss. And now they're trying to ramp up quickly with the reopening in the economy, which is terrific, but there's a lot of friction there. So I think that part of, we will know much more, and this is not very satisfactory, but we will know much more in three months over the summer if these trends are something that is continuing or not. We know there are still 8 million fewer Americans employed now than there were just over a year ago, pre-pandemic. Some of them may be taking early retirement. Some of them may still be at home because their kids are not yet back at school. And some of them may be living off unemployment benefits and enjoying it. But I tend to doubt that there are too many of the latter. Carrie, can we talk about the other big contradiction, which is the issue of inflation? I mean, it seems that for the moment, at least, Biden, the administration and the Federal Reserve are pretty aligned that the inflation whatever price hikes we're seeing are transitory. But I see a lot of news outlets and prominent economists and your friend Larry Summers are starting to raise concern about the inflationary fallout of Biden's policies, one of which a big one has passed. And as you point out, the others haven't yet. But when they do, it seems that people are concerned about that. The, the labor contradiction ought to play out over the summer. When does this contradiction play out? 
Well, I think that's probably going to play out over the summer as well. And it's certainly true, and we got new data on uh, Friday the 28th, just before Memorial Day, on the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation measure, which is called the Core Personal Consumption Expenditure Indicator. And that was also higher than people expected. It went over 3% for compared to a year ago. And the Fed's inflation target has been 2% for a long time. So certainly price pressures, Larry was prescient in pointing out earlier this year that there would be price pressures. And those are coming in, I would think, a bit higher than most people thought. But at the same time, expectations in the financial markets for inflation have not gone up too much. They also tend to expect that at the end of three, four years, these uh, price pressures will diminish again. So the key thing about whether inflation gets really worrying, well, there are two key things. The first is, do you get inflationary expectations built into a spiral? Now, do you find that prices are going up and therefore you want more wage, a wage increase and then the firms may grant a wage increase thinking, well, they can push up prices. And then you get into a spiral that can be uh, self-fulfilling. The other is that, well, maybe the Fed will step in and take actions to stop that from happening. It will raise interest rates slow the economy down and possibly even tip it into a recession. And that would be a danger and unpleasant. So there's sort of risks on both sides. I guess where I come out is, frankly, I don't think that anybody even in the administration, not that they would admit this, but I doubt whether they expected the full 1.9 trillion of spending to get agreed so quickly in March. You know, it was almost unprecedented. There's that word again to have an administration proposal approved in totality. So maybe even they didn't expect all of this spending to happen. But the fiscal policy, the next parts of the package, the idea is to pay for them. So let's see how that plays out. The second piece, though, is on monetary policy. I think it's more likely that the Fed, the criticism shifted in a way from well, fiscal policy is boosting the economy too much, to an idea that maybe the Fed was behind the curve. And the Fed's defense is, we mean to be behind the curve. We want inflation to go up a bit. It's been too low for a long time. But they probably, and if inflation stays at these levels in the next two, three months, they will start signaling in August, September, that they need to stop buying financial market assets, which uh, hold down interest rates, and they may even start to raise interest rates next year, rather than waiting another full year, which is what they had planned. Let me turn to another big issue that has divided this country, which is this both real and the sensation and the reality that there's this growing inequality in the country. And how do you see what Biden is trying to do? Are these policies that he is proposing, real fixes to this long-term trend that we have seen about this growing gap in income in this country? Yeah, that's a great question. And the, you know, the president said this week that rising wages, which makes people worry about inflation, that rising wages are a feature and not a bug of his plan. In other words, he means for wages to go up. The big question is, Will 
the shift in policies helped to push up wages more than prices. And because, of course, if you get inflation, going back to what we were talking about before, if prices go up by more than wages, then you're not getting the real income increase that you want. I think there are two ways in which Biden's plan really, and the helped by the Fed, really will and should help uh, workers' incomes and inequality. The first is just running the economy hot, and for sure we're going to be running the economy hot, helps to pull in people who've been marginalized before. It helps to drive down unemployment and bring in low-paid workers. The last people that get hired are the people that are most difficult to hire and the people that tend to get paid the least. And if firms are really like your Rite Aid example, if people really can't find workers, they will dig a bit deeper and look into pools that they might not have thought about before. And that will be good. Other things that Biden has proposed include on the tax side, you know, the corporate and, and we've seen bankers and others complain that raising the corporate tax rate will squash enterprise and so on. But we've seen capital take a greater and greater share of the pie, the economic pie in the United States. And I don't know that anybody exactly intended for that to happen. Maybe they did. But if you look at corporate taxes, that they only pay, businesses only pay about the equivalent of 1% of GDP in taxes every year. Way back in the 60s, that was four times higher. And even on, at the end of Reagan's time in office, it was twice as high. So there is room there for businesses and for high-income individuals to pay more in taxes. Now, that may not be so nice for investment returns. It may not be so nice for the company owners, but I think it will help to redress some of the imbalance. And just one other quick thing. We have learned, and I think this is all maybe a lot of people knew already and other people have learned over the past year, how much inequality is baked in by systemic racism. And the moves that Biden is encouraging to address that directly are very important, I think, to help to address inequality in an economic sense, inequality also of opportunity. So increased funds for pre-K education and so on are very important. Increased funds for community college are very important for raising the incomes of uh, the opportunities for marginalized communities. And I think that's important. Let's look at this from a non-US perspective. How would the world react and what are the global implications of the U U.S. moving to this kind of unprecedented high spending model? And even if it works, but especially if it doesn't. Right. So in a sense, the high spending model, and here I'm going to push back on unprecedented because we have had spending this high and taxes this high, just not recently in the United States. And of course, the United States is way lower than other countries. You know, we collect about a 25% of GDP in total for taxes. It's 10 percentage points higher than that for the OECD. In many European countries, it's 40% of GDP. First of all, if it succeeds in the sense that you get rapid growth in the United States, which we certainly will this year, it's good for exporting countries because we will buy more. 
it's not so good for countries that are very dependent on capital flows because as the US economy expands, probably interest rates will go up. Probably that will pull capital flows into the US and it will make things more challenging, especially for emerging markets. Bigger regions like Europe, they can set their own monetary policy. They will be affected. And actually, Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, warned that if America grows too fast, that will tend to push up interest rates in Europe. But they can do things to stop that. But if you're an emerging market or developing country dependent on financial flows, it's harder. But the poorest countries depend more on being able to sell the stuff that they make. And rapid growth in the US is good. Now, you said, what if it doesn't work? Well, I guess it depends a little bit which way it doesn't work. If it is a catastrophe and somehow you get very high inflation, people feel worse off, people are angry and fed up, and they vote back in a Donald Trump, let's say, well, the world didn't like that very much because the US was turning its back on the rest of the world. If it fails in the US growth, US goes back into a recession, which it's kind of hard for me to see how rapid expansion in government spending triggers a recession. But anyway, imagine it does through an inflation channel. Well, that's not good for the rest of the world because the US is the biggest global economy. It's not that open, but when the US does well, it tends to pull the rest of the world along. It's often referred to as a locomotive for, for growth, not just an engine, but the locomotive. It is being called that, at least, and U.S. growing at a healthy rate, surpassing China as kind of the global source for growth. What are the geopolitical implications of this recovered stewardship? We talked a lot in this podcast about how the U.S. walked away for so long and it's back. And again, what are some of the risks? Well, before we go to the risks, I just want to say, talk about some of the upside. And I think the upsides are really important because from my point of view, a lot of the challenges for the world now are global ones. I mean, obviously health, but also climate and poverty and migration. And those require cooperation amongst big economies and politicians. And I'm biased, but I do think that the US, you know, may get lots of things wrong in lots of cases, but when it's on its game, the US does want, on the whole, to make the world a better place. And it is quite good at grabbing leadership and pushing for uh, improvements, say, on climate. I'm hopeful that there will be a better out, you know, better work on health and pr pandemic preparedness and so on. So the, uh, the recovery, I think, is good. One thing I'm a bit worried about, well, one big political thing and then one more technical thing. The big political thing is that the U.S. remains hostile, I don't know, hostile, maybe too strong, but certainly in competition with China. I think that's that's driven also by China's attitude under, under President Xi Jinping. But just this week uh, or just recently, uh, the Asia coordinator in, in the White House for the U.S., talked about how it wasn't we weren't going to collaborate so much with China we were going to uh, the United States was going to be more in competition 
And that worries me just because we need to live together. And without being naive about what that means, there are certain big global challenges where the US and China need each other. One of them is the stability of the economics world financial system, but the others are the issues I mentioned about health and global poverty and most importantly, perhaps climate change. And you need the big powers to work together and you need a collaboration. The small, more technical economic point is that this let's do everything in America uh, is not going to be very successful if you, you know, the private sector is better than the government at directing economics. We've, we kind of know that. Private sector is not really good at doing some things, but it is really good at figuring out how to overcome supply bottlenecks and how to uh, produce things efficiently. And if we have too many strictures about stuff having to be done at home, I think that's problematic. I guess another thing I'd say just about the geopolitical implications, we talked a bit about systemic racism and so on. My sense is that that you can really see opposite movement at the moment in China and in the United States. In the United States, there, I mean, just recently, the first reparations were agreed in Evanston, Illinois, against uh, slavery. Now, obviously, there's going to be lots of debate about that may be a good or a bad idea. Everybody's going to feel it's too small. There is much more discussion now about the land rights of Native Americans. There is a kind of move. Germany has just apologized to Namibia for atrocities during Germany's control. My sense is that the democratic, big democratic countries, including the US, are kind of moving to acknowledge they're moving in a good direction from us <laughs> from that point of view. Whereas you see in China the oppression of the Ouija's, obviously on top of other issues there. And I think that people over time like freedom and that that model will be attractive. So that's a bigger answer than the question you asked. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a very hopeful way to end it, but I don't want to end it quite <laughs> right. yet. I want to give you 30 seconds because we're running out of time and just ask you, where do you see the U.S. economy in a year from now? It will be slowing down relative to now, but I think it will be doing quite well. Unemployment will be much lower than it is now. Uh, inflation will be lower than it is now. And so I think the U.S. economy will be going along at a reasonable clip, but it will be bumpy. That's perhaps one last thought. We're moving from one equilibrium to another one, and that's a bumpy path. So we need to roll with those bumps, but keep your eye on the prize. Caroline Atkinson, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was great. Peter, you heard all the information from one of the best experts we can find. Are you optimistic or pessimistic of this kind of big bet that Biden is doing? I am optimistic that if he gets some or most of this through Congress, we will have a economy that begins to transition to a whole new phase of industrial revolution. But I am not optimistic about his ability to get that through Congress. I am optimistic that the fact that he went big in the beginning during his honeymoon period, which is rapidly coming to an end, is going to 
kind of make him mostly successful in all of the economic plans that he has and the fact that he's doing it hand in hand with the Fed as well. We shall soon see when whether or not he gets his infrastructure package through. And with that, thank you very much for joining us on Altamar. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or send us questions. Look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>